This is Toku Yes brand manager Ian Harvey. I'm here with Kyle Bratroot. Kyle has 17 starts between World Cup and World Championships. His best finish was in the World Cup in Konya, Italy, was a 25th in the 15K Classic. Kyle skied all three of the last World Championship relays for the U.S. in 2015, 17, and 19. He was the third best American on distance points for pretty much that entire time. So this is a very elite U.S. male distance skier. Uh, he's got seven na U.S. Nationals podiums, including four wins, all in the 15K, three skate, and one classic. He skied for Stratton T2, and he retired at the end of this past season, the spring of 2020. Thanks a lot for being here, Kyle. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ian. Yeah, cool. I'm looking forward to an interesting and stimulating discussion. So let's start out. If you could please tell me where you grew up and how you started ski racing. Yeah, so I grew up in the Twin Cities, um, not really anywhere near skiing. I played baseball and basketball and eventually got into cross-country running, actually, in middle school and then high school. And then it, in high school, the how I got into skiing was one of my, I guess, rivals, also one of my good friends in cross-country was going to ski in the winter. And our plan originally had been to run all winter, which I didn't want to do by myself. So I ended up joining the Nordic team, but I had no, no experience uh, with skiing before high school. And I remember watching a VHS of Nordic skiers, probably one of the old ski team training videos or something. Um, one of the first days of practice in Nordic. And I thought it was the funniest looking thing and also something I had never seen before. So um, I came into it as green as can be, uh, but yeah, I, I fell in love with it and, and ultimately had a career in it, but I wouldn't say I'm probably your average skier in terms of how they grew up because I didn't know much about anything in skiing until I got to high school. That's really ironic because I would have had the idea that coming from the Twin Cities, you grew up on skis. For sure. And now the Twin Cities has such a great environment for young kids learning to ski, whether it's through the ever expanding clubs or um, all of the great uh, man-made snow environments we have. Uh, it's certainly growing in the culture, but yeah, for whatever reason that uh, I was not a part of that early on, my parents didn't really ski and uh, yeah, I never really got exposed to it, but I've been, really pleased to see how it's grown in, in the Twin Cities. And now it, it certainly is starting to feel like I'm seeing younger and younger kids out on skis, which obviously only will be to their benefit to be on skis earlier. So when was it specifically you started skiing? Uh, so it was, it was my freshman year in high school that winter season. Um, I didn't join immediately when the Nordic season started. I joined a couple weeks late. I was still kind of contemplating whether or not I wanted to ski just because obviously I had no equipment. Uh, I didn't know that you needed skate skis and classic skis. I, I, I had no knowledge of the sport. So I had my running shoes and I was contemplating just running in the winter, but um, yeah, a couple of my friends joined and, and they said, I said, join. So I ended up going out and uh, yeah. So it was my freshman year. The first was the first time I, stepped on a ski and and it was certainly a long and painful year of learning how to balance on the skinny skis. So between your freshman year and your senior year, you must have progressed a ton. Can you tell me a little bit about that and what program you might've been in? 
Absolutely. Um, so my freshman year, I remember my very first race was basically an ice rink and me and my buddy were neck and neck uh, racing in the GAV race because we started every minute or so. I have no idea how we finished, but we fell three times and I think we did the 5k in like 12 minutes. So we were like, well, skiing is the easiest sport ever. You just got to learn how to balance. And it, it got harder from there, but yeah, I progressed. I think I, I think my sophomore year, I got to go to um, the Masabi invite, the big race up at Giants Ridge. That was kind of my first exposure to skiing on a, a bigger stage. It was still just in the JV race, but uh, yeah, I definitely progressed a lot. I did my, uh, my head coach, Doug Boonstra's summer uh, ski program. It was only like three days a week because I was still running summer miles. Um, and then my, it wasn't until my junior or senior year that I joined then Minnesota Valley, now a part of Lopit, um, and started doing that three days a week. So yeah, I was throughout my high school career, was still running a lot. It was just adding more roller skiing in. Uh, and yeah, I definitely made, made a lot of progress, but it wasn't, it, it still took some time. I didn't make my first Jans team. I didn't even try to make my first Jans team until my senior year um, in Minneapolis. So that was kind of the first sign that I could maybe ski in college. But yeah, it was definitely not a uh, easy ride up. So this is interesting to me. I talked with Ben Lustgarten yesterday. Sweet. You and Ben, along with Scott Patterson and David Norris, I would say if you look at the past six years, you've been two of the leading U.S. distance skiers. You know, the, the four of you have, have been a, kind of a core elite group. Yeah. I think it's fair to say. Um, he didn't start skiing until his freshman year in, college, in high school either. And he didn't get very good until his – more or less a senior year either. One thing about distance skiing is you need to train for many years and absorb the training over many years in order to get really good. For uh, sure. Both of you retired earlier than one would have expected and started later than one would have expected. Yeah. That's, that's a, an unfortunate thing. I hope it's not a tendency for U.S. distance skiing, you know? For sure. Well, that's, that's why I am happy that to see the younger kids in the twin cities getting on skis earlier. Cause I don't know what, what Ben's thoughts were, but definitely the first couple of years in high school, I think is primarily just learning how to balance on your skis, learning what training kind of looks like learning how to roller ski at all. Um, you're going through the learning period of figuring out how the heck you ski before you even get into any form of training. So definitely that shifting earlier to map more like what the Norwegians or Russians are really basically every other country now, <laughs> uh, what that looks like that I think make, will make a big difference, but yeah, it certainly is. It definitely wasn't to my advantage to start, to start later. Yeah. I'm kind of glad you didn't listen to Ben's interview from yesterday because I'm going to ask you some of the same questions cool. that, that are pretty much, I, I'm only asking just you and, and him pretty much out of most of the interviews I've done because You've been elite distance male distance skier, so um, I'm, I'm anxious. To, I'm happy to get kind of a candid response from you. Perfect. So, how did you do your senior year in high school? I'm, I'm kind of curious how it is you made it to NMU with such a fresh start to skiing. Did you surprise yourself senior year in high school? Uh, 
To an extent, I I think my best place at JNs was like 15th. So it wasn't anything amazing. I know at state I got fifth, which I was pretty disappointed in. I definitely wanted to do better, but I didn't have a great race. And that was one of the first years. Now I think it happens most years where the wax in the classic race was quite tricky up at Giants Ridge where normally it's blue extra. Um, so that was, was okay. I mean, it was the best finish we had had in, in our school in a while, but actually how I got onto NMU was ultimately my running times. I remember Stan being very excited about my running times. And I think seeing the potential, knowing that coming from Minnesota, um, he used to always joke that the high school, um, league in Minnesota had a ton of skiers with really good engines, but with zero technique. So he accurately depicted that I had a very strong engine and absolutely no technique. So I think he figured that he could get me, uh, and kind of polish me up a bit and <laughs> give me some technique and make me into a, a faster skier. I don't remember you running for NMU and for Jenny Ryan. Did you, did you go there specifically to ski? Yeah. So there is no men's running team. There's oh. only a women's, which is unfortunate cause I probably would have ran, but it maybe was nice. Cause then it, I had all my attention focused on skiing. We occasionally would join races. The men's ski team would uh, just in the open category because there would be races where they would race tech and tech has a men's team uh, along with some of the other schools. So I ran a few races uh, at NMU, but it was definitely more felt more like a, a training session, which I think was good because my freshman year at NMU was the first year that I was fully devoted to cross country skiing. So I think it was good to not have the distractions of running. Uh, but I did look at some schools that had running. I mean, I looked at Scholastica, which had running and skiing, but ultimately I think it was probably good that I went to a school that only had skiing, if anything, just to focus me on skiing and help me kind of fully understand what ski training looks like. Okay. Well, let's talk about NMU, I guess then. So you went there in, from what it sounds like, grossly under-accomplished for an elite, for such a program, you know, I mean, NMU pretty much gets its pick of, you know, of who they want and 15th in JNs and fifth in States is, is an unqualified uh, freshman, you know, really. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you show up and you turn into a freaking beast. What happened? Well, the team, as you said, the team is, was very strong. I, didn't really know much about NMU um, until late in my college process, but my dad had actually been following them because they obviously raced in the Midwest and he had, he had seen that they had some strong skiers and some good results. Um, but I, I, yeah, I hadn't really thought much about NMU until I, I went there and, and met with Stan. And once I met with Stan, then I instantly fell in love with, with NMU. I knew I was going to go there, but definitely I would say, it has to do with just the team and how strong they were. I mean, I got lucky enough to be a freshman alongside Shale Christian Markset, who freshman, he was, I think he was 27 when he started, but as a junior, he had raced like and been on podiums with, with Petter and Anders Glerson. And so he was quite a good skier, kind of on the other side of his career, had had some bad luck, had burnt himself out a little bit. And so he kind of took me on as a project and kind of, teaching me things that maybe he did wrong in his career and um, things that I could do differently. And so that was, 
obviously a huge part in, in my success at NMU. And then of course, Stan, just the ever steady uh, Norwegian coach that he has definitely helped me kind of find my way and in, in training. And yeah, it, I felt like it was just a slow build each year of kind of getting better and better as I progressively trained more and more. Um, and I mean, it was basically the first four years of my career with full ski training. So I felt like I made improvements every year based on that alone. Obviously. I mean, um, are there some principles that, that you learned at NMU through STEM, let's say that served you very well while you're at NMU that, you know, either training techniques or principles or philosophies that, that you adopted and blossomed? Absolutely. I mean, most of the principles, not only were they helpful at NMU, but I basically spent my whole career under them, which, um, yeah, I mean, there are so many, but just how to train. I mean, Stan being a Norwegian coach had that kind of balance between training hard, but not, not being an idiot, not, you know, overtraining. Of course, I still managed to overtrain once in my career, but, uh, yeah, it was a good balance between we're all really hard, hard workers, but he also wasn't afraid to call you out and be like, don't do that. That's like, that's too much. Like I remember my freshman year, he would, wouldn't let me finish all of the longer interval sessions. He'd hold me back a little bit. So by my sophomore year, I was hungry to, to do all the intervals with, with the guys. And, but then at the same time, if I was trying to do something I guess, heroic in training, he would be like, why, like, why would you do that? You know, Pete Vordenberg did that and he sucked that year. So don't do that. So he had the goods to back up what he was saying, but um, yeah, I mean, if anything I learned from Stan, it's that it's while skiing is ski training is complex. It's also pretty simple. You have to listen to your body. You have to do your distance days easy. You have to show up on your interval days. You have to get lots of sleep. I mean, just the basics that I assume pretty much everyone you've talked to one way or another has, has come across these basic principles. Um, and yeah, that's, I mean, Stan was the first person that kind of taught me that as that was the first ski coach I ever had, um, year round. So certainly my foundation at NMU is I only built on it as I progressed in skiing. Um, but certainly it didn't just apply to NMU. It was throughout my career. Stan's obviously a legendary figure. I think everyone who's rubbed shoulders with him looks up to him, even as a legend, you know, they admire him. And um, he's also full of stories and one-liners that are inspirational and crack you up. Yeah. I used to hear him say, not to me, thankfully, but to other people, you picked a heck of a sport for someone who doesn't want to work hard. Or he'd say, for someone who doesn't want to work hard, you picked a heck of a sport. Yeah. You ever heard him say that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he supposedly once his daughters went through the program he was a little chiller so I got the chiller side of Sten but he still could definitely definitely rip you a new one if you did something wrong so yeah it's it's the combination of of those he'd tell you something funny but also it would definitely be something you'd want to listen to but at the same time he's coached Chris Cook, Pete Vortenberg, all these legends so you know that he knows what he's talking about it's not like someone who you don't necessarily respect is telling you something and you're like, well, maybe I'll try my way. It's if he tells you something, you, you listen because uh, 99% of the time he's right. Have you got any other uh, one-liners or, or famous anecdotes that he's told you that, that you come to mind? Oh man. Well, the one he always said, not, not so much one-liner, but 
his, his big mantra, especially my freshman year was like, first you form an attitude and then it forms you, which was very helpful in the UP because we often trained in not ideal weather. So it was good to be mentally tough. I mean, I always felt like I was fairly tough, but being in the UP certainly strengthened my mental toughness. Uh, yeah, I'd have to think about some other ones, but. But that's a really good one. First For sure. I mean, that's, that's a basic one, but it, it definitely, if you think about it, it defines how you approach skiing in general, I would say. Yeah, but it's also basic truth. I think if you have a, a particular attitude, you become the embodiment of that attitude. For sure. If you're complaining all the time, you're probably going to be weak and undertrained. And, and if you're a go-getter and excited, you know, and highly motivated, then you're going to turn into a beast like you did, you know? So For sure. That's cool. For sure. I like yeah. that. I actually haven't heard him say that before. Well, <laughs> stick around him long enough, you'll hear him say it. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Um, anything else you want to mention about you didn't come from a skiing family. What about uh, any other mentors beside the, the one other skier from Norway you mentioned in Sten? Yeah, I mean, well, basically the whole that whole men's team. I mean, George Cartwright was on that team. Uh, he, I think he swept JNs in Soldier Hollow when he was maybe a J2. I can't remember exactly when it was. It was before my time, obviously, but one of the funniest guys I've ever met, also one of the strongest guys I've ever met. I mean, he barely did strength. If he did push-ups, his chest would blow up. Um, and I remember the first time I saw him, he was roller skiing and he was basically roller skiing on the yellow inner wheel of the Marway. His wheels were so gone, but he's, that's just how he is. He's, he's maybe a little too lazy to replace it, but also like tough enough that he doesn't care. He's just out roller skiing. So and then Eric Soderman, um, the Swede on that team who ended up winning NCAAs in Bozeman. So it was a great group of guys and we had a lot of fun, but also worked really hard. Um, so all of those guys. And then near the end of uh, my time at NMU, uh, also like, I mean, the Gregs, Brian and, and then Matt Leapsch, um, those guys were kind of my training buddies when I was in the cities. And it was kind of fun to go from watching them from afar in races and kind of idolizing how fast they were to then getting to the point where I could actually ski and with them and, and training. And, uh, yeah, those were two very reliable guys. If you were in the cities, you could call them up and they would have a route that I have never skied and then also be ready to ski with me and within the hour. So, cool. um, yeah, I would say those are a few. So you graduate from NMU, I think at that point, at, on the U.S. ski team, or having had been named to the U.S. ski team, and I thought you were named to the U.S. ski team when you were in Marquette, anyway. I made a world championships my senior year. I never was named to the ski team. Okay, all right, all right, yeah. Marquette. We, so you skied for the Stars and Stripes internationally at yeah. world championships, which is, you know, as high as it gets. That's, for sure. that's actually a more elite group than the U.S. ski team. So For sure. Good. Uh, so what I mean is a very elite skier. You graduated from NMU as a very elite skier. Absolutely. And I, I believe you had a national championship under your belt at that point too? Yeah, my senior year in, in Houghton, uh, I won won the skate race there. That was, it was kind of a breakthrough year for me. I mean, I my best finish at nationals, I think was 25th before that nationals. And then I won that race by 50 seconds and was third in the 30K Classic. So that was kind of the breakthrough point in my career where I figured out that I could ski after college and, and actually be quite good um, in skiing. 
when you uh, won that race, Kyle, sorry, when you won that race, my reaction was first, who? And second, freaking Sten did it again. Because yeah. Sten's had so many national champions that have come out of the woodwork, and, and you won it by 50 seconds, which is absurd. You know, uh, but it also showed, obviously, what you were investing in the sport and that you're obviously talented and, you know, improving very quickly. Because it wasn't a, a flash in the pan. You won three more. So, you know. For sure. Yeah. But that, that was definitely the first time I put together feeling really confident all summer having my training. And then I definitely helped that I was in Houghton and I was comfortable there. And I had done enough nationals at that point now where I felt like I knew knew what I could do. And yeah, I mean, I was still shocked after that I had won. I felt like I had a good race, but it didn't necessarily feel like anything different than the couple weekends before when we had raced. But uh, yeah, that obviously gave me a lot of confidence and helped me decide that I wanted to ski after college. And, and yeah, I mean, it's, as I said, that's one of the reasons I went to NMU. Cause if you know, you, you know, good skiers come out of there and I was just trying to be another one. Yeah, exactly. Well, anyway, you graduate from NMU traditionally a, a high level elite skier like yourself graduates from college and then looks left and right and just picks a club, goes to an elite club and then kind of tries to continue to make progress, banging heads with some other elite athletes. You didn't take that road. You stuck around in Marquette for three years training in Marquette. And when you went to super tour type events, there was kind of a CXC shell organization is what I would call it. That, that waxed your skis or organized ski waxing for you at those events, but you weren't really a member of any team. Can you talk about that phase? And was that a smart thing for you to have done or could you just describe it, please? Yeah, I, whether it's a smart thing for me to have done, that's a good question. <clears throat> um, I think so. I, looking back, I maybe was in Marquette a year too long, but it definitely was a unique thing. It kind of, things just kind of worked out. Andy Keller was the, the CXC um, elite team coach at the time. And he's very laid back. I mean, he ended up living in Marquette. So he was there with me and it worked out pretty well because the NMU team had a lot of uh, really good skiers, a lot of skiers who could challenge me. I mean, Frederick Schwenke, who I lived with and, in Marquette for all those years. He ended up winning NCAAs in Lake Placid, the classic race. He is a year older than me, but was still on the team once I had graduated. And then Adam Martin, who was a little younger than me, but obviously a very strong skier. Ian Torchia was just starting to become who he is now. So it was a very strong team and I didn't necessarily feel like I was like head and shoulders faster than everybody. I still felt like I got a lot out of training with those guys and I really liked Stan and, and that whole thing. So yeah, it was kind of a, a weird thing where I was on CXC, but I was training with NMU. I was technically a volunteer assistant coach at NMU. So I was helping out Stan with anything that he needed. And then Andy was there. So he was kind of helping out Stan as well. He would help film. Obviously he would film me for training, but then he would also help out Stan as well. So it kind of worked out where that both, groups were helping each other. Uh, and yeah, I, I felt like it was, was a good kind of intermediary, intermediary for me where, uh, I, yeah, I guess I just didn't quite feel like I was done with, or had gotten everything out of Marquette that I wanted to. And 
I was there for three years. I should have been there for two years and then I should have gone to Stratton, but hindsight's 2020. Sure. Um, so let's, let's talk about Stratton and the Midwest a little bit. There are a ton of Midwest skiers, obviously. Skiing's very popular in the Midwest. There are many talented Midwest skiers. After they get to a certain age, pretty much all of the talented Midwest skiers generally leave the Midwest for Alaska, for APU, for Craftsbury, or for Stratton, in, both in Vermont. And then there are others that also might leave, especially more recently, for Sun Valley or for Bozeman. But bottom line is they all leave pretty much for one of those five elite programs. Yeah. Um, I think if you, I, we talked with Stuart, I talked with Sverry Caldwell the other day, and part of their develop, really important part of their development pipeline is something I've noticed in Scandinavia and Germany over the years where you have a club that's bottom to top and you've got kids, you know, youth skiers in the club looking up to internationally successful junior skiers. And those internationally junior skiers in that same club are looking up to internationally successful senior skiers. And, and they work out oftentimes at the same time, either around each other or even together, depending on the, on the age groups. What Sverry described that he does in Stratton is he'll have the juniors and the elite skiers working in the, let's say, a hill bounding workout. And he'll have the slower skiers just start higher up in the hill. And so the faster skiers pass them during the intervals. And the, the slower skiers were still very good skiers have the opportunity to emulate them and try to hang with them. And then during the recovery phase, the elite skiers have to run farther down the hill in the same amount of time before they start their other interval. And, and those types of things seem to me are so important because it gives the junior skiers the opportunity to emulate the senior skiers. And it's also like a carrot being dragged in front of you such that they're super motivated and super focused. And, and you don't have to give them technique tips really because they're seeing it. And the senior skiers have a little bit more meaning perhaps to their existence because they can mentor junior skiers and, and of course they're banging heads with one another. So it seems like this is something that's really missing in the Midwest to me. What are your thoughts? For sure. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, yeah, I saw it firsthand in Stratton and it's not like there's a massive number of juniors in Stratton. I mean, it's the group is like 10 to 15. So compared to the Twin Cities where there are hundreds of kids in those programs, um, it shows that just having the carrot in front of you, having someone to follow can make a huge difference. And CXC at one point was, I mean, the biggest thing is there's no major club in, in the Twin Cities. CXC obviously in their, uh, when they first started, they, they, they were that, they were that big club. They were the best club in the US. They had all of the best skiers. Uh, it's in an interesting location in, in um, Cable, Hayward, I guess Madison is technically their headquarters. All three of those places, not really near the center of Midwest skiing. I mean, the Twin Cities is the center of Midwest skiing just by the numbers. So I, my hope and what it seems like is going to happen, hopefully sooner rather than later, is that the Loppet will uh, have a, have an elite team. I've sat down with, with Chris Harvey and Piat and had some conversations with them. And they're certainly aware that that is something that they could and should get into. It's just a matter obviously of figuring out logistics and figuring out how to budget for everything. But 
certainly the Twin Cities is an ideal spot to have an elite program because, as you've said, there are so many professional skiers that started in the Twin Cities and have branched out. And it's not really necessarily like they had a choice. There's just nowhere else for them to go in the Twin Cities. So they had to branch out. If they had a choice, possibly that could make a big difference. And I mean, the Twin Cities has the infrastructure. Um, contrary to popular belief, the Twin Cities is not flat. There are plenty of hilly places to uh, train, as I found throughout my career. But we have now with the brand new uh, trailhead and at Worth, they have a strength area. They have the roller ski treadmill at Pioneer Midwest. So it's just a, as great a spot as any, and it's five minutes from the international airport. So uh, yeah, and there's snowmaking there starting usually just after Thanksgiving, on Thanksgiving, depending on how cold it is. And that's reliable snow, no matter what the conditions are. So I absolutely think that there will be a professional team in the Twin Cities again through Lopet. And yeah, I think it might take a little time, but you, you'll slowly retain some top skiers. And then there's no reason it can't look just like Stratton or just like APU or any of those other clubs that have both juniors and high-level skiers skiing together. I think right now the biggest thing is that it's just not – there isn't a club there. Yeah. So when, when CXC started, Toko was with CXC from the beginning. And I had a high-level cooperation with them. Um, you can name the people who were those CXC team members. It wasn't that many years under, under Fish and then under Court. On the men's side, let's say – I'm not going to name them all – but on the men's side, some of the more notable people were Matt Leaps, Brian Gregg, uh, Brian Cook, um, Garrett Cuzzy, for example. All of them won national championships over top three in the Berkey. All of them. Yeah. And, and all of them are still – Cuzzy is in Europe doing his uh, tour guides. Um, Brian Fish is work. I'm sorry, Brian Cook is working for Montjuice now. He worked for Solomon for years. You know, he's an industry figure. Brian Gregg obviously is still super successful and, and very influential in the Midwest. Matt Leach, obviously, with Pioneer Midwest is a, a very strong and successful figure. On the women's side, of course, you had Jesse Diggins, you had Jenny Bender, you had Caitlin Gregg, Compton, you know, whichever at the time. Yeah. Um, it's super successful athletes who you know, Jesse's best, one of the best in the world. Caitlin's got five Berkey wins and a bronze medal in world championships. Jenny Bender's got a handful of national championships. I, this was only a few years that this program existed. And most of these athletes are from the Midwest. You know, they sure. didn't leave. So I, I, I would, I'm agreeing with you. And I think um, it's an example of what could be if LNR or one of the other local clubs were to invest in an elite club and stop the talent dream for the Midwest and, and give someone for junior skiers to emulate. I, I really think that would be super important. For sure. Cool. Neat. Okay. Um, the, so you went to Stratton and of yeah. course Stratton, the T2 team in Stratton is, is exceptional on both the men's and women's side. Um, Ian Tortilla is there, but Simi Hamilton's there, of course, one of the world's best sprinters. Um, Ben Sacken is also a very successful sprinter, but on the women's side, of course, you have Jesse and Sophie and um, just some, half the World Cup team generally or U.S. key team is, is there. So uh, can you, and, and Pat O'Brien is the coach. I was hoping you could tell me a bit about the Stratton program and what it was like to be coached by Pat O'Brien. For sure. Yeah. So like I said, I, 
probably should have gone there a year earlier, but ultimately uh, it was, it made sense when I uh, ended up heading there just due to the fact that, as you mentioned, they have such high level talent. And I felt like to achieve the next level, I needed to be around guys that could continue to kick my butt. Um, Sferi and Sten have a lot in common with their training philosophy. So I knew going in that it wasn't going to be a radically different training environment. Uh, they basically had a lot of the same uh, training philosophies. And, and then obviously that was emulated through Pat. Uh, and Pat was, yeah, I mean, an amazing coach. He, like Sten, was both would nudge me where I needed to be nudged, but also would sit back and let me kind of make my plan. And, and, uh, he was super big on like, if you don't feel comfortable with it, like there's no point in doing it. Cause it, you're not going to be happy. You're not going to ski fast. So he definitely helped me fine tune a lot of my training and figure out what workouts were good for me, what workouts maybe I could cut down a little bit. Uh, I actually, shortened how much intensity I did when I went to Stratton and that ended up making a pretty big difference. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Pat was amazing. The coach or the athletes there are all super strong. I mean, it was nice to be back there with, with Ben, uh, who I had spent a lot of time with in the Midwest. And then Patty was on the team my first year. It was great to finally link up with him because we hadn't really I mean, we had obviously raced each other, but we hadn't done much in terms of training outside of like one U.S. ski team camp or something. So, so, so it was great to train with him. Sorry, just for clarification, you're not talking about yeah. Pat Ryan, you're talking about Patty Caldwell. Patty, Patty Caldwell, yes. Uh, yes, I mean, obviously an uh, incredible distance skier in his own right. So being with him and then, and then having Simi on the team, who while being a world-class sprinter is also an incredibly good distance skier, um, super strong and technically one of the better skiers that I've seen. So great to have those guys. Then obviously my second year, Ian joined and I had obviously trained with Ian and Marquette and he's a very strong distance skier. He pushes, pushes me, especially in running and bounding stuff. So it, it was great to have him out there and yeah, it's, it's a small team out there, but it's kind of nice that way. Cause then you get a lot more attention from the coaches and, and it just feels like a, a closer group. Uh, so yeah, I certainly enjoy my time in Stratton and that was definitely, definitely good that I went out there for Marquette because that was um, the right next step in my career. So here's a question for you. You came from the Midwest, one of the, you know, hotbeds of American Nordic skiing, and you went to Southern Vermont, another hotbed of U.S. Nordic skiing. Okay, in Midwest, you were, you know, NMU and on your own a little bit and so on. Whereas in Southern Vermont, you're with the Stratton team, which is kind of the epicenter. But uh, can you comment on maybe the difference in the cultures, the ski cultures of the two areas and maybe how they're organized and just some observations if you have any, if there are any contrasts? Yeah, I mean, well, the biggest thing about Stratton, as we had kind of already talked about, is how Sveri has talked about that model of basically just having your club from bottom up that definitely was apparent when we got there uh we did a lot more with juniors than i mean at nmu obviously i was just there with the college guys training and then when i was in the cities i would generally just train with the older guys so i wasn't doing a whole lot of training with with the younger guys um but that certainly was 
a nice, uh, nice change. It, it felt more rewarding to be able to contribute a little bit to the younger kids. And certainly, I mean, it, it also helped us because, I mean, at the time, Will Coke was, I mean, now he's even stronger, but he was already quite strong, but he's still, still a junior. And, and Ben Ogden, who also likewise was an absolute beast. Uh, so having them there was, was great because it was fun to help them and, and try and be a small part of their journey, but also they were quite good. And if you had a bad day, then they were going to be breathing down your neck. So it, it also gave us motivation not to, not to let up on any days because you had some strong juniors um, breathing down your neck. But no, I, I don't know if there's that much different culture-wise. I mean, all places I've been, I've been around skiers who train really hard and, and enjoy training hard. Uh, but the biggest difference about Stratton is just that it's in the middle of nowhere compared to the Twin Cities. But that was, that was kind of nice for, for skiing. You're just isolated and you're just skiing and enjoying, enjoying being outside. And, and there are less people trying to kill you with your car. So, uh, but yeah, I don't think that, I don't think there's major differences. Uh, certainly like, like we talked about the, that club difference though, that is um, maybe the easiest way to get, make everybody in your club better at skiing is to just have, always have there be a next level. So more or less geographically, basically the same training wise, you know, pretty much all the Nordic skiers in the country do more or less the same thing, working their tails off. Um, but the, the true difference was the way it was organized where you were integrated with the juniors. It was a bottom top kind of, kind of thing that possibly could be really useful for the Midwest. But, um, but that was pretty much the only real contrast. Yeah, that's what I felt. I mean, maybe I was blind to something major, but that's, I, it feels, it felt, uh, yeah, fairly similar out there. It also probably helped that about 60% of Stratton was from the Midwest when I was out there. So maybe that's why I felt it's kind of like the Midwest. Yeah. Which is unfortunate, but interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So Kyle, here's the shifting gears. Do you have a favorite race that you've ever done or a day that brought great emotion or memories? It doesn't have to be Olympics or, you know, one of your world championship starts. It could be your uh, sliding around in the ice skating rink, you know, doing your for sure whatever. Yeah, oh, something that brought, brought, brings emotion for you to recall. Absolutely, uh, I have have many of those. Uh, I mean, still probably one of my favorite races, as I had kind of alluded to earlier, was was the race in Houghton, um, that first world champ or world championship, first national championship. I wish it was a world championship, because uh, that was really the first time that I kind of realized that. I could be a professional skier and, and could ski on the world cup. Um, and I mean, Chris Freeman was there who at the time I hadn't met. And then afterwards in doping control, I kind of got to know him better. And then ultimately world champs got to know him even better, but, um, just meeting these people that I've looked up to my whole career, uh, also had, that was one of the first times I had beat Patty Caldwell, who again, hadn't really interacted with, but I obviously knew of, of the legend of the Caldwell. So, uh, yeah, that was a pretty, uh, pretty special day for me. And, and I also had no idea that I was winning, um, despite the fact that I won by 50 seconds, because I think initially Sten's split timer was not working, or maybe it was because I was ahead by too much that he, it, he didn't punch something right in. But um, yeah, a series of events like that, and then also having... I skied with Gelso a bit who was fighting for the podium and I was getting splits that ultimately were his splits that were saying that it was very tight and you were fighting for the podium. And 
I thought they were talking to me. So I really didn't know that I had won actually until shortly after when Sten came up to me. And then obviously that was an incredible feeling because I didn't think that that was something that would ever be possible in skiing for me. Uh, so that's definitely probably the most special ski race I've ever done. I also love skiing in Houghton. Uh, Let me interject something in Sten's defense, just, just to throw that out there. It was extremely cold. <laughs> oh, which means electric yes, absolutely not be working and, and so on. Absolutely. No, it, it was, it was a memorable day for more than just me winning. It was, it was cold. My eye, my vision was limited to pretty small slits in my cascos because everything else had frozen up. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it was definitely a, a memorable day, but yeah, that probably was part of his issue. Yeah. Have you got another event you'd like to highlight or experience? Well, Konya scoring World Cup points was certainly uh, exciting. I mean, I knew I, I could sc score World Cup points. I hadn't quite been able to do it. Uh, but finally getting to do it, and, and, and I knew throughout the race that I was having a good one and um, was going to be more or less within the points. But uh, finishing that race and, and knowing that I had scored World Cup points was definitely, was definitely special. I mean, not a lot of guys scroll world cup points and distance races. So it was, that was special for me on kind of on the other end to be, feel like I had finally accomplished something that I had been working towards throughout my kind of later professional career when I was actually on the world cup. Uh, but yeah, I mean, all my world or all my uh, national championships were special for various reasons. All of my time, all my races at world championships were special for various reasons. It's uh, I think that's one of the, best parts about skiing is that every race is is so unique and different and I don't know if it's like it for everyone but I certainly remember very vividly um what happens in ski races so uh yeah there are there are a few races that I didn't enjoy or don't remember much of if I remember it seems like you changed a bit which is natural of course but as you got stronger and improved some of your later national championship titles were not at all a surprise and I remember watching some of them and you would ski into the race and pretty much you would set it, uh, let's say at a three, three lap race at Soda Hollow, for example, when you won, um, you'd set a tempo that would put you in there. And for the first two laps, you'd be in there. And then the third laps, you'd turn the, turn the screws on everybody and end up winning by 30 seconds or some 20 seconds. But it seemed like you knew what you were doing when you were doing it. And it was, a, it was a calculated thing, which is a lot different from your first national championship, for example. You know, you've, you really um, matured in, in many ways, not just physically. For sure. Yeah, my first national championship, I basically sprinted off the line and just had a really good day. So I was able to more or less hold that crazy pace. But I definitely, that was something that I gained throughout my career, just, just having the confidence to know how my fitness was and and I generally knew before going into a race if I would have a chance at winning or at nationals I generally felt like based on how I had trained leading up to it because um, I had a pretty specific plan that I would follow I knew if I had a good day and I had good skis that I would have a chance at winning um, and probably would win if I paced it right that uh, yeah obviously gave me confidence I mean after winning the first time I had confidence that I could do it again. And then after doing it again, I had confidence that I actually had a decent amount of control over it. If I trained well and 
Yeah, especially the races at altitude, um, whether it was with Pat or with Sten, kind of figuring out what you could do and not really getting emotional during races about like starting out too fast. There's definitely, I mean, I don't think it's as hard as everyone makes it sometimes with pacing. It's obviously if you start out too fast, you're not going to pull a miracle out of your butt and, and be able to come out of the red zone at altitude. I mean, when you're done, you're done. So certainly I felt like my pacing in ski races was uh, a product of just being confident and knowing that I've done, I had done well-paced races in the past. And as long as I had the legs, then I'd be able to do it again. But yeah, it's, I mean, that's what makes national so special for me was training well before it. And then knowing that I was in good shape and just being confident enough to maybe not get a split that I was right at the front. Maybe I was 10 seconds, 15 seconds back, but knowing that I would easily be able to pull that back if I followed my pacing strategy. So here's a question for you about the mentality you know, you win a national championship, it's a, it's a good day, obviously. You know, For even sure. later in your career, you know, you only won four of them, only. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a good day. Could you have the same attitude, the same – when you're racing national championships on your first lap, you could allow yourself to feel pretty comfortable. Mm-hmm. And if you got a, a split, like you just said, you were 10, 15 seconds down, you said, okay – I got it in me still. I'm going to turn the screws later. I, I got this. You know, I, I can do this. If you go to a World Cup or World Championships, do you allow yourself the same confidence and leeway? Or are you like a scared bunny rabbit just right out of the start? Because, you know, in order to get a result, you have to haul ass right out of the start. And next thing you know, you don't feel the same. You don't have the same strength and so on, you know. Can you talk about that? For sure. Yeah, uh, certainly that was how exactly how I described my first world champs and, and probably my first couple world cups, I was basically just spectating while also participating in the race. I, I mean, that's the biggest difference on the world cup is that Americans in general have no control over the pace. And, and especially as of late men's racing has been quite fast from the gun. Uh, So it definitely is a different pacing strategy, I would say in terms of you don't really pace it. You just kind of hang on for dear life, which, I mean, the races that I won were 15 K 15 Ks at nationals. Uh, In mass starts, I, for instance, last year in Houghton, I basically sat in 20th place and was getting gapped, but was confident enough in my skis and the fact that Americans don't race that aggressively that, I would be able to get to the front whenever I wanted. And then I ultimately was able to, and Eric and I kind of broke away at the end. But I think that's one thing that we don't really do ourselves any favors with in the U S especially in our mass starts is racing fast enough. Um, Cause then you go to the world cup and you absolutely have no control over the pace. You're hanging on for dear life. Certainly David has gotten real good at this recently, David Norris um, about basically hauling ass into a good position, getting into like the top 30, top 25, and just kind of planting himself there. And when he has a good day, he'll be around the top 30. And when he doesn't, obviously he'll fade out of it. But unlike in the U.S. where you can kind of work your way up and and get into a better position, you really can't do that on the World Cup once the race gets going. Yeah. So, but let's talk about interval start races because all four of your U.S. national championship races 
I believe, were 15K. Yep. And you've raced a, quite a few interval start races on the World Cup or internationally. Yeah. So we're not talking about a mass start where the pace is being dictated to you and you need to sure. say, okay, you know, how, how much am I going to suffer these first two Ks, kind of pick my spot. And then in an interval start race in the United States, you start and you get your splits and you're like, okay, I'm going to feel comfortable, you know, a certain amount of comfort the first couple laps and then I'm going to turn the screws. And we see the Europeans doing this all the time. You, know, sure. you, you see the Europeans Peter Northug was famous for that, but all the, all, the, all the top Europeans pretty much do that. You know, they get those splits and they stay in there. And then the, the last lap, you see what they really have under the hood, you know? For sure. I don't imagine you ever allowed yourself the opportunity to do that, but maybe you did. Can you talk about that in an interval start race in the World Cup? For sure. Uh, no, I didn't really until in, in Davos this year. That was the one time where I uh, actually had the confidence that I could have a decent result. And I don't know if that was because I knew that uh, that was my last race before I was coming back to the U S or I, it was a 15 K skate, obviously, which I was comfortable with and it was at altitude. And, but no, I certainly didn't have a ton of races like that on the world cup. I would say in Lati in the 15 K classic where I was 31st um, at the world champs, that was similar where I, had a pacing strategy and was able to pick off a few people and, and kind of dictate my own race. But yeah, Davos was unique because it was at altitude. So as I said earlier, my altitude pacing is fairly straightforward. I just try and ski my first lap as comfortably as possible and while still skiing fast. And I think I was in like 50th place or something after the first lap, maybe even like 60th. And then I started working up and then my last lap, I was basically going as fast as I could um, as much as you can sprint at altitude um, and as much as I can sprint. But yeah, I think I ended up the result on paper. Wasn't that great. It was, I think I was 38th, but I was 10 seconds out of the top 30. I think I was only like 20 seconds out of the top 20. I mean, it's men's racing. It's very close. So I finished that race and I was like, okay, I paced that race like really well. Like, maybe I could have gone a little faster at the beginning and maybe still had the same sprint, but at the same time, I definitely could have blown up as well. So, um, yes, but that is, I don't know if that has to do with, well, I think it does have to do somewhat with comfort. Just the more world cup starts you do, the more comfortable you are over there. You kind of stop looking at those guys as people you watch on TV and you start looking at them as guys that you're just racing every weekend. Um, you get used to living in a hotel. I mean, there's a lot of variables that are against us racing over there, but I definitely think that that is the point that we need to get it to, obviously to fight for wins or top tens or world cup points is to just have a little more confidence over there. Cause certainly I can say that my confidence in the U S is very different than my confidence in Europe. Yeah. So Davos, as far as I'm concerned, maybe someone will disagree with me, but for me, that's the premier skate race of the entire winter for the most part, all the skate, you know, 15 K skate interval start specialists. The first thing they do every year is they highlight that in the spring and say, I'm going to kick some butt in Davos unless world championships or the Olympics happen to have a 15 K skate interval start, you know, if it's one of those years, but sure. after that is Davos. That's, that's the skate race of the year for skate specialists. So for you to be 10 seconds out of the top 30 and you know, there are a lot of variables, you know, you didn't necessarily have, a great day or great skis or great whatever, you know, 
when one of those variables tips in your favor, you're looking at a top 15. So yeah, yeah that's, that's a great result. So yeah, let me yeah. segue into a related topic. And that is between 2015 and 2020, you were generally the third American on the distance FIS point list. So elite. Um, you skied all three of the world championship relays, meaning again, you're one of the top couple US skiers. U.S. men have traditionally done better in sprint than in distance. What is lacking in American men to break into the top 10 in the World Cup in distance? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fair question. I Personally, that was one of my pet peeves, I think, throughout the whole, my whole ski career was I don't think that men's distance gets enough credit for – I don't think there's as much of a gap as – it seems like obviously results wise, if you're just talking strictly world cup points, you do see the gap, but I think I personally, and maybe I'm biased because I got my butt kicked for, for years, but I think that the men's distance field is one of the hardest fields um, is the hardest field to compete in on the world cup, just because of how tight it is. I mean, as I said, I was 38th. I think I was like 10 seconds out of, out of the top uh, 30. So that's basically a second to place. So, so let me just say, as an observation, historically, I would say since, let's say, the mid-80s, historically, I think our current distance men, in many cases, are the best we've ever had, if you look at percent back, yeah. which, is, which is what you're saying. Yeah. And, and there's some extremely good results. Not, not only your results, but, for example, Scott Patterson was 10th and 11th in home and Cole in the Olympics in the 50K. You look yeah. at percent back. His, those are two of the best distance results in the history of our, con our country. Yeah. Uh, David Norris was 16th in um, Falun recently. And, and I mean, that was, his timeout was nothing. It was a fantastic result. So, yeah. you know, U.S. men's distance does get talked about negatively. And I didn't mean to put it in that light at the same yeah. time. In terms of placement, you know, we are, in terms of our place behind the leader, you know, we've had a number of podiums in sprint and a number of people, different athletes getting top tens. So my question again is, you know, what is it that's lacking? We are very good, but what is it lacking to what's missing to get into the top 10? For sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a good, a good chunk of it could be what we talked about earlier with just like having the confidence. Um, it could be something as simple as I am 27 and I'm retired and to be a good endurance skier, maybe not starting at 17 and being down to 27, you know, maybe doubling that career length, starting earlier, finishing later. Um, certainly there are a lot of young, young skiers, both on the women and the men's side who are doing better as opposed to the kind of generic, like 25 to 30 or whatever you want to say for like your endurance peak. But I do think that we will continue to see better results as we get more guys like Gus and Benny O and those guys coming up who have been training since they're little and have just kind of more mimicked the Norwegian model. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of little things. It's, it's, yeah, just believing that you can do it. It's, you know, it's, it's waxing. I mean, the men go after the women every single race and, they don't always get wax tested after the women's race. So sometimes we're racing on the women's race wax, but um, 
you know, sometimes it's things like that. Sometimes it's maybe just, yeah, the cards falling a little differently instead of me being 10 seconds back on 10 guys, I'm 10 seconds up on 10 guys. I mean, Eric Bjornsson certainly showed that when the cards felt fell right for him, he could be on podiums pursuit wise, or um, certainly be fighting closer to the top 10 than the top 30. So, um, and yeah, Scott and David have shown in 50 Ks when they have good days that they can be up there. So I'm definitely hopeful. Uh, but yeah, I, I've been asking myself that question for a long time. So I don't necessarily know the answer. So, so just, um, I want to go back to that question, but just to highlight another superb American men's distance race day, Seyfeld mass start a couple of years ago, Simi and Eric were both, um, I think they were, we're both top 10 anyway. Um, yeah. That was phenomenal. So yeah, I mean, we had, we've had some results, but they haven't been celebrated perhaps or, or as regular. For sure. Well, and sometimes it's just, we need more guys over there racing. I mean, we haven't had a massive contingent of, we haven't always filled our starts. So sometimes I think it'll, it's just going to be getting more guys over there consistently, not having them just show up off the plane as a super tour leader and expecting them to have a good result, but kind of getting back to the, uh, Noah Freeman, Eric days where there's like three or four consistent guys that are over there and are comfortable and know all the races have, have raced all the venues. And maybe it's as simple as that. And then just, they'll be comfortable. So I definitely think that the younger generation of guys is um, the most hopeful generation that I've seen. So um, I I completely agree. And I'm anxious even, even already to see how Gus does this winter, because I seen him this fall and man, he is flying. But let me, let me go back to that question. I asked David Norris the same question and his answer, no one's pointing the finger at you just so you know, but he brought you up in his answer. Um, He said, he commented that because it takes so much longer for an athlete to achieve a high level in distance racing due to a need to absorb the training over more years, obviously in sprint, you don't need to absorb training over as many years to be competitive in sprint as compared to, in distance. And he thinks that many quit before they achieve their potential. And then he brought up you as someone that he thought would, was right in the cusp of making the red group regularly. Um, so th- that's just a comment that David make made. Um, no one is obviously, at least I sure am ha- I'm not faulting you for uh, retiring because that's your prerogative, of course. And you've, you uh, worked your tail off for many years and you have four national championship titles and you were at three, world championships and which competed in the relay and other races. So, I mean, you've had a a great career, but that concept is an interesting concept because it clearly does take quite a long time. And you and and Ben, for example, Ben's 28, you know, you're both retiring in what would traditionally be your, your peak as a distance racer. Both of you started late. So you could probably add a couple of years that might have something to do with this. Absolutely. Yeah, no, David's hundred percent right. And I know that, that stems from uh, kind of Flora's philosophy of trying to keep people in the sport long enough where they can reach their full potential. So no, I've had a lot of conversations with David about that. And uh, yeah, I mean, he's hundred percent right. Whether it's me or Ben or Jack Hegman, Rogan Brown. I mean, we basically lost the entire Sun Valley distance team a couple of years ago. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's tough because, for me, I didn't retire because I didn't think that I could get faster. That's kind of, I think maybe the funny thing is, and I'm sure 
maybe Lusty similar, maybe he felt like he was butting his head against the wall. I'm, I shouldn't speak for him, but it is, I think it's about finding a balance in U.S. skiing where we can, people can get the opportunities they need in Europe and, and uh, feel like they're making a difference over there. And then they want to stay in the sport longer. I mean, for me personally, it was more just mentally, I went from, I think being one of the people who could survive um, in a hotel in Europe the longest to really having no desire to do it at all. And just wanting a little more mental stimulation in my day-to-day -day life, uh, not having anything to do with skiing. I still loved to train and I loved to race. And uh, so I think the bigger question basically is how is the sustainability how do you maintain that, especially in distance skiing, especially in men's distance skiing, where yes, maybe it is as simple as we just need to men's distance skiers to start when they're 10 years old or something and ski until they're 30. And then, and some, some go beyond that. And then you'll have a little wider range of talented guys. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard because you see Norwegians that burn out well before they're 30, but there's, a hundred more were willing to take their place. So maybe it's something as simple as just having more people to choose from in the U S and more guys to, to be in that group, um, to yeah, keep pushing the ball forward. I have to say, first off, I retired when I was at the peak of my abilities, um, back, you know, a long time ago, but, um, you know, I was racing, World Cups and doing as well as I'd ever done and racing internationally for the United States. And I quit because I felt the need to establish my career. I met my future wife. We'd actually just gotten married. And I kind of felt the, the need to grow up and move on, <laughs> kind of, you know. Yeah. And, and, and I didn't want to fall in the trap of um, competing until I couldn't compete anymore as a full-time athlete. And then being like, oh, man, I'm 36, 38. What are we going to do? where you know all these other people used the last 20 or 15 years to establish a career i was out skiing and then you're done and you, maybe you have a job in the industry probably not because there aren't that many jobs in the industry so you're looking yeah. at coaching you know that's pretty much the you know your only option at that point unless you're you were blessed with money or a family business or something so um you know your options are very limited if you give it a, a long-term go here For in sure. the us you know so I think there's, there's an element of that. Like Ben, I talked with him yesterday, and I knew this already. He was on the list to go to Davos and Lillehammer this winter. Last, uh, Ten days ago, he was still on the email list. He was, mm -hmm. he was going. And then he finally said, I can't do it. You know, he hasn't been, you know, he doesn't feel like he's sharp enough. And he couldn't swing with COVID and his job and the whole thing. But they, he's not burned out. He's, he's, uh, he's looking for a fight on skis big time, you know. <laughs> for sure. And yeah, for sure. A lot of us in that boat, but you have to at some point say, okay, you don't want to retire and be in a hole, a massive hole, you know? For sure. Well, I think that's part of the sustainability is is yeah. the grind of funding from year to year. So, I mean, obviously Craftsbury has a unique situation, but I think that men and women, that, that definitely plays a role where at some point, maybe you can't justify spending that much money and not making any money on yourself. And so that that could be a small piece, whether it's, yeah, having better, better funding in skiing. Um, certainly I don't want to be the one to try and come up with that plan, but, uh, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a factor of a lot of things. Uh, so it's certainly, yeah, I don't think that people, I would 
be willing to bet that the majority of people who are retiring from skiing at a high level are not retiring because they're burnt out. It's just right. maybe they have something else they want to do. Maybe they want to start a career. Maybe, yeah, mentally they just would like to do something else. But um, yeah, I mean, I certainly, it's not like I will never touch my skis again. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting out on snow this winter. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely not a burnout thing. The trite and jerk face answer to the funding issue is, of course, well, win some medals. You'll have plenty of funding. But For sure. like I said, that's a trite and jerk face answer because the reality is the funding precedes something like that, I think. For sure. Well, and then you look in, at alpine skiing, and even though you have people winning a lot of medals, sometimes it's just getting funneled to like two people, and then the rest of the group is non-existent. So, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 complicated, and and it's not it's certainly not just a skiing sport. I mean, that's that sport in general. Always trying to find that balance. So, yeah, I don't know. I, it's it's a lot of things. Yeah, Kyle, I have a bunch of questions for you still. Um, so let's talk about what you're doing now. So you retired in the spring of 2020. What are you up to? Yeah, I after the Berkey, I kind of uh, thought that was a good break in the season to, to retire. I could have done the end world cups, but I wasn't really feeling it um, being about a month and a half out. And I obviously had no idea that the season was about to get canceled and things were about to get strange, but I, uh, after the Berkey, I, I decided that I was done. I, I drove out to Colorado and applied for a job out here. And, and luckily I was able to get that job and um, so I, I work at the 20th Judicial District uh, Courthouse in Boulder. I started out working in the clerk's office processing cases and, and the like, and now I'm working under a judge, actually. So um, I assist him in, in court proceedings and then also case processing and that sort of thing. But my degree was criminal justice. So it's been kind of exciting to be back in my field of study and I had contemplated coaching or, or doing something in the industry, but it was, I kind of decided that it would be nice to take a step out and do something a little different. And knowing that I could always work my way back if that was something that I was interested in down the line. But yeah, I certainly had no idea that uh, shortly after I retired, that was going to be the end of the season. And uh, I ended up doing the last race of the year. So uh yeah, kind of strange. And then also with COVID, I certainly have not had a lot of time to think about skiing because there haven't been any races and there are a lot of other things going on in, in the world. But uh, so it's, it's been an interesting, interesting time. I definitely was got right into the real world, basically a couple of weeks outside of skiing. And yeah, it's been, it's been strange to um, feel so removed from skiing just based on the fact that there isn't ski races. And then with, I just feel like COVID has made me feel like I've aged about 10 years since I retired from skiing this spring. It, it seems like so long ago. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm working in working in the judicial field right now, but yeah, certainly excited to get back to skiing in the winter. Cool. Why Denver? Did, did you apply to jobs in other locations or was Denver your first choice? Uh, no, uh, yeah, Boulder was, was more or less my first choice, uh, mostly because Kelsey's here, um, Kelsey Finney. We were both on Stratton. Uh, she was out here last year because she had had shoulder surgery and then was living out, out here 
um, with her parents and, and we, we have a place right below her parents. Uh, so I, I didn't need to be, uh, convinced to move out to the mountains. Um, so yeah, I just decided to drive out and, and try and get a job. And luckily I was able to get one and now she's going to grad school. So yeah, we have a nice, nice situation here. Perfect. Yeah. What do you see yourself doing in where in 10 years? That's, I know, a really ridiculous question. but For sure, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a good question. I honestly don't know. Uh, it's, and that's been, that's been kind of exciting. Uh, after being such a meticulous planner and skiing and have, having such specific goals, it's been kind of exciting to not really have a plan, which generally is fairly stressful for me. But... Um, yeah, I'm, I, I really don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of nice not to know though, isn't it? No, it, it's, it's very freeing. Um, I could see myself staying in, in the field of law. Um, I've thought about law school. I ha certainly haven't ruled out coaching and skiing or working in the industry. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I honestly don't know what, what the answer is right now, but that's, it's actually, it's, it's, it's okay with me. Unlike in skiing, whereas if someone said that I would need a detailed plan. So yeah. yeah. Let, me, say. let me go to a, a training question. I've asked everyone this. So um, the idea of a magic bullet workout is, is it really shouldn't exist because you need to have obviously a lot of variety in your training and so on. But, but do you have a core workout that if you did it well, you thought that it was a good benchmark or indicator that you were going to be well prepared for the coming season? It's the key workout. Yeah. I didn't really have, I definitely had like a group of key workouts, like in the summer bounding, always doing like some good bounding sessions. That was a good way where I felt like I was instantly getting fitter. Um, in the fall when we would start doing some hard L4 like skate sessions specifically, if those went well, I felt like I was on track, but it wasn't, it wouldn't necessarily be a specific workout. It would just be like putting together a good week of workouts and having my body feel like it was ready to do another week. And just kind of knowing that feeling when your body is, is ready to perform. And then certainly like once the winter rolled around specifically before nationals, I'd have my pre-planned like three weeks of a buildup. And then as long as that went well, then I was quite confident that I was in a good place. So yeah, I wouldn't say anything specific but more just that feeling um in my body when i when i knew that i had put on a good workout cool. um, and knowing knowing that it was absorbing the work and it was ready for ready for racing mm -hmm. so this is a tricky question maybe if you were to start your ski racing career over again as your as a teenager what would you do differently if anything yeah it's a good question um not as much maybe as I would think. Uh, there are certainly things like maybe going to Stratton a year earlier. Uh, obviously, as we talked about earlier, some of the confidence I had when I raced, having that, arriving at that a lot earlier in my career would be nice. Um, kind of getting the starstruckness out of myself in, in World Cups and just being ready to race over there, I think a little earlier, that obviously would be helpful, but no, I, I think at each step of the way, I learned a lot, uh, 
learned a lot in, in skiing, whether it was with Stan or with Pat, with Andy, uh, specific races, you know, my race in Houghton that gave me the initial confidence. And then, um, the Berkey, when I was first American, that was a very chaotic race. And I broke my pole really early on and had to ski for 5k with one pole. So I basically knew for the rest of that race that I had no more matches to burn. So specifically that race helped me a lot with skiing really comfortably in a group because after I did it there, then I realized why can't I do that every race except not have wasted the energy at the beginning. Um, yeah, a lot of little, little pieces that fell into place throughout my career. So I don't, I don't think it would be a lot. Um, just, yeah, just the basics of knowing that distance training is easy and to go hard in workouts and yeah, you can't, you can't really overreach. You just have to be confident and, and things work out. So, yeah. Here's a, we haven't talked about strength training at all. I think strength training has changed probably more than any other aspect of training over the last 20 years and then continues to change quite quickly. I also think that if you look at some of the young skiers that you mentioned, such as Ben or Gus or Luke Yeager, Johnny, um, JC, they're unbelievably strong. It, you know, if I look at them and compare them to an earlier generation, in terms of their fitness, they're probably similar, but their, their explosive strength is off the chart compared to previous generations, in my opinion. What is it that they're doing differently? Or why are they so very strong compared to their previous generations? It's a good question. Um, if you've ever seen me in a spandex, you know that I never figured out that answer because I, I was small throughout my career. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Strength has, has definitely changed a lot. I definitely think that being explosive, where, whereas in the past it seemed like that used to maybe just be a sprinter thing, now it seems like basically every guy on the World Cup is also pretty explosive. I mean, of course, you have a couple of the stereotypical guys who are pure distance skiers, but it seems like the whole World Cup is getting stronger and still just as fit. So I don't know if it's a specific strength workouts or if it's just people realizing that you can still be quite fit while being really strong. Um, but yeah, our guys seem to have figured it out and maybe it's from them going and doing those junior camps in Norway. Um, just being more engaged in strength from a younger age. I mean, I hated the strength room, so I know why I wasn't strong, but, um, yeah, whatever they're doing, I, I hope they keep doing it because it will serve them well. When I'm, when I'm talking about strength, I'm not necessarily talking about the weight room, although there are a lot of people throwing the weights around these days, that's for sure. But, I mean, if you look at, for example, just two names popped into mind, um, Diedrich Tonseth and Sir Rota, neither of those guys, I mean, they're, they're very slightly built. Both of them have the speed to qualify on a, on a mini tour or on a stage tour for the rounds in the sprint. You know, they're very yeah. fast. And they're... And in a mass start, they can accelerate like nobody's business, even though they're very lightly built. They're obviously super strong, and and acceleration is such a huge part of the sport uh, in mass start racing. Clearly, you have to have power, explosive power, compared to your weight. Um, and and you know, with four national championship titles and a number of very good international results, you clearly also have that to a point. Like you know, maybe not like Peter Northug, but you know, you have a certain very good amount of that. Um, 
so I wouldn't necessarily discount any, I wouldn't at all discount any recommendations or ideas on strength that you have. You've just gone about it differently than, let's say Ben Saxton's gone about it, you know, one of your teammates. For sure. Yeah, I, well, it's interesting. I mean, obviously all athletes are different. I think some, there are probably some Norwegians that hit the weight room pretty hard, but I know from Sten and him speaking with like, he's quite good friends with Anders Gleresen. A lot of times they don't really do a lot of weight room strength in the winter. It's a lot of explosive strength, a lot of ski specific strength. And I think it's just skiing, skiing with good technique, being explosive in workouts, whether it's like a proper speed session or, or uh, doing ski specific. uh, Yeah. Strength. I, but yeah, I, I don't know. Cause it's, it's very different. Like all the French guys, they obviously throw around a lot of weights and are very strong and are definitely getting it from the weight room as are the Russians. The Norwegians in general seem to be lighter on in the weight room, but they're no less strong. Um, so, I mean, like with ski training, I think there's definitely more than one way to go about it at, at NMU with Sten, it was definitely a lot of core focused strength, whether it's bands or, core circuits or medicine balls or, or whatever. And and that was certainly what I focused on the most was when I felt the strongest, I was strong in my core and then everything else around it kind of built. Like for me, I I had a hard time doing like leg strength in the weight room because I felt like I got all my leg strength from running up the mountain or doing roller ski workouts or, or yeah, but I don't know. I strength, strength has always puzzled me. Core being defined as between your armpits and your knees, not yes. the traditional six pack, obviously. But you're talking, yeah, no, you know, you're talking hip uh, rotators. You're talking sure back treading versus abdominus. You're talking back. You're, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Which is a very important um, clarification, obviously. Yeah, for sure. So, um, like Ben, I asked this question to Ben yesterday, and he went on and on about um, back squats and you know, a lot of really heavy weights and not doing much except for core specific strength. And then I talked to someone else and they're like, oh, I just do tons of plyometrics and double workouts. And then I do a lot of explosive sprints, you know, and I talked to someone else. And, and so within the realm of strength in the United States elite skiing circle, there's a wide variety of what's being done. Even, even, um, like Ben Ogden said the other day, he stays out of the weight room to a great extent because he's so naturally strong. He also bulks up very easily. So he tries to, you know, avoid that. Whereas another person um, is working his tail off in the weight room because he doesn't necessarily have that natural strength that Ben talked about. And he's also a hard gainer. So he's not going to, you know, bulk up. He's just going to get strength and stay light, you know? Like there's yeah. a wide variety. If you look at what people are doing for, for training in terms of their endurance training, pretty much everyone's doing more or less the same thing. But in strength, I think there are some very dramatic differences between people inside of clubs and also between clubs and even between nations. It's interesting. For sure. Yeah. And I don't know if that's more of a, more of a training camp thing. Like we don't have a lot of training camps reverence together and we have a unified strength plan. I mean, obviously the other nations are having a lot of, camps where they're all together and they're all on a pretty similar plan. Uh, 
but yeah, I mean, certainly I've experienced that. I know Rosie Frankowski, she barely does any strength and she's one of the stronger people I've seen. So, um, and then you'll have people that like me who can lift all day and aren't necessarily going to bulk up. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard. I don't, I don't necessarily know. Yeah. If it's, if it has to do with not having a unified, um, nation's training or a strength plan or, or what, but I, I'm always, I'm always interested when any coaches are talking about strength because yeah, I, f I find it to be so fascinating and, uh, a bigger puzzle than it seems like it should be. I think the US ski team has been pretty transparent in their strength philosophies with their strength coach. Um, they've had different ones over the years, but throughout, I think they've been quite transparent about it. And they've, and a lot of the strength they're doing specifically is in the weight room. And they start out with max strength and a power strength, and they go to a velocity strength and, and so on. And, uh, but not everyone, it seems like Stratton more is more on board with the US ski team type program. APU is kind of all over the place. And, you know, some people, yes, some people no. It's an interesting, it's an interesting thing that we have a, a strong dichotomy in what's being done, even amongst our top eight men and our top eight women in the United States. Yeah, definitely. It's really interesting. As, yeah. you, as you point out, there isn't necessarily one road. The clue the Norwegians are doing you know, they're the, I would say the leanest and the slightest built country in the World Cup, male and female. They're doing something completely different from the French, the Russians, the, the Americans, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's so, you know, there isn't necessarily an answer, but it is an interesting topic to explore because clearly we're all different. And there are many paths to get to the top of the podium. And For sure. part of the challenge is to figure out which path serves you best. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. Okay, let me uh, again switch gears. You know, I've been the Toco glove designer for many years since, since there have been Toco gloves. Do you have a favorite Toco glove model and why? For sure, yeah, definitely the Profi uh, because it's the only one I will ever race in. I, yeah, I like to have a nice thin glove. Not that I don't appreciate the thicker models because those are very nice to me in, in the Upper Peninsula. But yeah, I love having... A uh, thin glove that is breathable, but will also obviously keep you warm enough in the winter. And I, yeah, I basically, I, I don't know, maybe I had one race in my career where I, I race in a thicker glove, but I think almost every race I was racing in the profies just because I like to have that contact on my pole. And I mean, I'm still wearing them when I'm biking to work. So I, I definitely like having, having that thin glove for, um, yeah, really any activity, but it, it keeps you warm, but it's also, yeah, I like to be able to feel the things that are in my hands, which is why I prefer that, that to like a lobster mitt or something a little thicker. The Profi has a different fit than every other glove we make by design. It grabs the fingers and it's got that elastic mesh between the fingers that is yeah. you know, extremely breathable, but yeah. um, it's got a different feel because it grabs your fingers. I guess you like that feel as yeah. the, let's say the classics that don't grab your fingers but are also yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. And the classics, I try, I would train a lot in the classics or, or like before a race, if I wanted to like keep my hands a little warmer, I'd use the classics because they're still a pretty thin glove, which is nice for, for skiing specifically. Uh, but yeah, I generally wanted as thin a glove as possible for actual racing. So 
that's why I would say the Profis were my favorite. I definitely had the most Profis of all of the Toco gloves I had. Cool. Okay, here's a, here's a question for you. What do you know now that you wish you had known when you were 18? It doesn't have to be pure skiing, just anything. Yeah. Oof. That's a good question. Uh, well, I would probably just say that I should definitely ski, which I ended up doing, but I, there's definitely a long period where I was unsure if I was going to ski in college or if I was going to run or if I was going to just do school. And so I think what I would want to know is that the skiing was the right choice because that allowed me to travel around the world and, and meet such a cool, small community of people. And, uh, yeah, I mean, pretty much make me the person I am because I can't, I can't even remember life without skiing. So yeah, I would say that's, that would be the main one. Cause it's, it goes beyond skiing. And I mean, it's basically who I am today is through skiing. So cool. yeah, definitely glad I made that decision. Do you see yourself being a lifetime skier? As long as my body will allow it. Yes. I, uh, one of the benefits of growing up in the Midwest is that the Berkey is always out there for, for, uh, for you. So yes, I definitely, definitely will ski as long as I can. I mean, it's, absolutely my favorite activity to do in the winter um maybe not a lifelong roller skier but a lifelong skier for sure cool what is something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out yeah i had to think about this one for a bit but probably that i can't v1 to the left um i never really learned when i was as i said when i started my freshman year um our first couple of practices were on uh, at Highland at the downhill area. So it was the hill we were on was slightly, slightly slanted down to the left. So I was only be wanting to the right and I got pretty comfortable with it. And then that was basically all I learned. And then throughout my career, I was never comfortable enough to be one to the left. I would do it occasionally in practice, but I was never comfortable enough that I was strong on that side in a race. So yeah, of the three national championships I won in skate, I didn't be one to the left once in any of them. That's funny. And there were some hills where I definitely should have. Right. <laughs> cool. Okay. Do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? Well, similar to the one-liner that I said about Sten, about first you form an attitude, then it forms you. Uh, I would say just do the work. I think it's... Uh, Another one of my pet peeves in skiing was some of the, the blogs where it seemed like everything was always happy and perfect and there was nothing wrong with, with your training at any point, which of course everyone figures out is a lie. Um, social media where you're always acting like everything is fine. I just think it's uh, just putting your head down and doing the work and I always felt like I just needed to let my skiing do the talking. I was never a big social media guy anyways, but um, yeah, I think it's just important to be honest with yourself and also, you know, with others. I I always, if juniors ask me what I liked and didn't like about skiing, I would certainly would just tell them the honest truth. I, I didn't never held back anything. I mean, it, it's not always fun to train in the rain, but I also had the discipline to do it because I wanted to be a better skier. So I think remembering that you just have to do the work. There's no secret. I mean, as we've been talking about World Cup success and strength and 
there's definitely a, a better way to do it and a worse way to do it, but there's not necessarily some way that's going to help you leapfrog. You just have to ultimately put in the work, and obviously that goes way beyond skiing. Now that you live in the Rockies, you know that juniors don't ski in the rain in the, in the West. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't go out in the rain now. Uh, with how sunny it is, now whenever it rains, I, uh, yeah, I have to hide indoors. But, yeah, it's uh, – luckily there's a lot more sun out here than, than rain. Otherwise, the, the Western skiers would never ski if they were in Minnesota or in the east. I grew up out east, and, of course, I grew up skiing in the rain and in yeah. the bush and the mud and all that. And I came out here, and one of my jokes that I always say to my wife is the people in Utah are scared of the rain. Because when it's raining, no one goes outside. Yeah. <laughs> the sun comes out and then, and then everything's, you know, people are everywhere. But when it's raining, pretty much it's empty. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Wow. Like, why would you do it? Just wait a half an hour. It'll be Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> something, you're, something that you don't get to have in, in the east. Sometimes you won't see the sun for a couple of days. So if you, don't, if you don't go out in the rain, you're not going to go out. Yeah. And more than likely, you're going out twice a day. And both days, it's the same rainstorm. What I used to do, I lived in this cabin this one year. I just put the wet clothes on from the morning workout because they were going to be wet in two minutes anyway. You know, that river yep. water fall rain that goes down the back of your neck, you know, you're going to be, it's going to be freezing cold and super wet in two minutes anyway. So the heck with it, you know? Absolutely. Now my joke in Stratton the first year was that my running shoes were not dry the entire summer. <laughs> and that's the summer in the fall it can be, depending if you're unlucky or not, that's the worst, you know, Absolutely. Or, or the best depending, but man. Yeah. Okay, so um, you're one of you're, you're an elite cross country skier with a lot of experience, with a lot of perspective. Um, I think in terms of your personality, the what, what you just alluded to, talking with junior skiers, being honest, and so on. I do think that you're very suited for coaching and for mentoring and so on. Do you have any interest in returning to skiing as a coach or as a master blaster, even? after your career gets established? Yeah, as I kind of alluded to, I certainly am not ruling anything out. Um, yeah, if the right coaching opportunity presents itself, I would definitely consider it. I mean, I love, I love skiing. I love the uh, ski culture. And I think I have a unique perspective having not really known anything about skiing at a older age than most. So I think it's, I think that is a good perspective to have for people that are maybe starting late, just it's never too late to start. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It, it, the, the right opportunity would have to come, but I, I'm certainly, certainly still paying attention to the ski world and, and looking, looking for things, but, uh, yeah, wouldn't rule it out. Would maybe rule out the master blaster part. We'll see. I'll, I'll definitely, I'll definitely do the Berkey and, and maybe do a few races at altitude where I don't have to move that fast. But I think my true racing days are behind me. I uh, don't do many intervals these days. Yeah, we'll see. You're, you're on the, uh, the traditional path of someone who just barely retired from super elite racing. So you've got like five years anyway of the bottom of the trough, maybe even 10 years. And I, my guess is you'll pop up on the other side and you're going to be exactly what you thought you would never become, popping up in all these master's racers and, you know, uh, hopefully even coaching. If, if, if you don't do it on a professional level, you could do it on within the bounds of your career. And For sure. I, I'm sure you love cross-country skiing as much as anybody. 
Absolutely. It's going to get the best of you. Yeah, probably. <laughs> hey, um, you know, I've seen you around a lot over the last few years. I guess most commonly in West Yellowstone after everyone leaves between the fall camp part and the, uh, and the fist races or the super tours and um, here and there anyway. And uh, I think that in many ways we're in the same wavelength. I've enjoyed our contact and um, I've enjoyed watching your career and supporting you, of course, in a little way. Um, and I wish you the best. And I thank you for, for talking with me and the American Ski Public today. And I don't know when we're going to run each other, into each other again, but um, anytime you have cause to reach out to me, you just know that uh, it would come on very welcome ears. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, thank you. And you, uh, yeah, given me, supported me with gloves from my uh, early college days. Now I, I probably can't get in trouble anymore. So yeah, it's, uh, it's been very helpful. Yeah. But yeah, I'm sure we'll, we'll meet up on ski trails or bike trails or something. We're, we're in the West. I hope so. Yeah. Cool. But yeah, thanks for doing this. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah.